You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. Welcome back to the podcast. It has been a while since the last episode. So inshallah, we'll run through a couple of announcement housekeeping items before we get into the episode. So Alhamdulillah, the fic of social media book that I have been working on is now published. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Nasser, Alhamdulillah, wrote the foreword to the book. It is a short book. In fact, the most consistent feedback that I've gotten from people is that they read it in one sitting. But it's meant to be a short book highlighting a principle-based, an Islamic principle-based approach to using social media. Each chapter has short action items at the end of each chapter. And inshallah, I hope you check it out. Obviously, there'll be a link to get the book in the show notes below. And this particular episode that we're getting into is an interview that I did. And actually, I was on the end of being interviewed uh, with Tarek Dummer from thinkbytes.org. I had written an article for their website around the concept of soft skills and how to develop them and why it's important. So in this episode, we talk about that article. We talked about things like intentionality, giving and receiving feedback. We talked, of course, about social media as well. So all of that is in this episode. I'll link up to the article, to their site, all that good stuff in the show notes. Please make sure that you go through that. Before we roll out the episode, I'm actually going to play a promo for the Fickle Social Media book. And this promo, Jazakallah Khair to Brother Osman from The Inspiration, uh, he recorded this little promo to put into the episode that I did with him uh, about the book. I'll link to that as well so you can check all of that out. So without further ado, you will hear the Fic of Social Media promo and then the episode uh, with Brother Tariq. Uh, inshallah, hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback, questions, etc., as always, reach out. And with that, here we go. The brand new book, Fiqh of Social Media, Timeless Islamic Principles for Navigating the Digital Age by Omar Usman and with a foreword by Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda is now available to purchase on Amazon. Praised by multiple prolific Islamic speakers and scholars, the book serves as a guide on how to maintain your spiritual integrity online, navigate the ever-changing landscape of social media, applying prophetic etiquettes online, using social media as a tool for spiritual development, and much more. Visit ibnabiomar.com to learn more. So assalamu alaikum everybody and jazakumallah khair for tuning in to this discussion uh, with uh, Brother Omar Uthman. Uh, we'll be talking about the uh, article that he recently published with us, uh, Soft Skills and Introduction to Personal Development, uh, as well as some of the other work that he's involved with. Uh, the, uh, uh, his recently re- released book, uh, Fiqh of Social Media, is uh, the culmination of a lot of work that he's been doing in that space, uh, both uh, you know, publicly and behind the scenes in his writing, as well as uh, uh, in uh, uh, workshops and classes. Uh, and uh, you can find that right now on Amazon, uh, as well as, uh, uh, there, is there any other resellers? Coming soon, but right now, just Amazon. Right now, just Amazon. I highly, highly recommend you check it out. I benefited from a lot of Brother Othman's, uh, Brother Omar's um, reflections on the topic of social media, uh, his analysis of the different ways that sort of uh, spirituality uh, uh, is you know, affected and shaped by our experiences there. 
and uh, inshallah, we'll get into that a little bit more uh, uh, later into the conversation. To start off, uh, Brother Omar, you wrote us a piece for Think Vice, and uh, as somebody who, uh, so my initial introduction to your content was through, uh, I believe it was the uh, uh, the hashtag fifth of social media stuff that you were doing on uh, Facebook way back in the day. Uh, I think I came across that page before seeing your personal page, uh, and I, as soon as you you had your newsletter available, I was subscribed. And I am a, a longtime regular reader of those articles. I have uh, cited them in conversations with uh, uh, Muslim organizations uh, very often. Uh, particularly, uh, there was a, there's a piece uh, uh, where you kind of summarize the concept of inreach and outreach uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, event programming for Masajid. And every time I mention that in any setting, people are kind of you know, surprised you know, by not only just like the simplicity of it, but like how often we overlook it. Uh, the idea that subhanAllah so often we, we, we do programs in our community that we think are outreach, but really they're just in reach or the opposite. Uh, and uh, before kind of we, we jump into that stuff a little bit, I just want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really interested inshallah in kind of expanding a little bit on some of the ideas uh, that you mentioned in uh, the article. That's, uh, it is currently the featured article on ThinkBytes. Uh, so you can find that at thinkbytes.org. It will be right there on the homepage inshallah. Uh, and if you're watching this later, then uh, you can find it by looking for that the, the article title, Soft Skills, or uh, Brother Omar's name. So yeah, Jazakallah Khair, thank you for coming. Jazakallah Khair for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Barakallah Khair. So um, first and foremost, uh, the topic of soft skills, when it comes to the idea of uh, uh, personal development, it's very often, I think, used right now with the, with the self-help industry and whatnot to kind of teach very vague concepts. Right. Things like, you know, be motivated, believe in yourself, don't stop trying, etc. Um, do you feel like this is, you know, what do you have to say about, I guess, the way that the general self-help industry has as an approach to personal development? So, I mean, this is a really complex topic. And I think it's for so the way that I look at it is this. I think it's important to differentiate two things because. And all of so you kind of already threw self-help under the bus, right, but within that messaging, there is some truth and benefit. And so how we separate the two, I think is important. And the way that I categorize them is there's skills development, which is professional development or personal development or attainment and development of some type of a skill. And then there's the actual self-help industry, which is more oriented around motivation or upliftment or building up someone's self-esteem or giving them some type of inspirational message. And I think what ends up happening a lot of times is that that inspirational messaging becomes what people are chasing after. And a high level of consumption of it makes you think, makes you feel as if you're developing something when in reality you're not. And I think a skills-based approach is drastically different because when you're looking at it from a development point of view, there are actual tangible skills that you're identifying that you need to work on and develop. So when you talk about developing those skills, uh, the, one of the main things that you talked about in this article was basically that you, 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 def you drew a line between hard skills and soft skills. The idea of hard skills being generally things that you can kind of pick up kind of directly through, you know, schools or technical learning, right? If you want to, you know, learn how to code, if you want to learn, you know, kind of basics of, you know, graphic design, et cetera, you kind of identify these things as hard skills or, you know, accounting or medicine. Um, how would you define then soft skills in contrast to that? And even if you want to redefine hard skills, you know, how would you kind of draw the line between these two? 
So hard, hard skills would be direct level competency required for a particular role. The soft skills are all of the other things that go around it that make you likable or respectable or the way that you interact with others. So if we, so let's take a look at a couple of these examples, right? So for example, if someone's a physician, now there's hard skills that are non-negotiable. You have to have an understanding of biology and chemistry and anatomy and all those different subjects that they go to school for, for like 15 years, right? Those are hard skills, but the soft skills are going to be things like the bedside manner the way in which they talk to patients, the way in which they're able to display compassion and empathy when communicating difficult news to someone, the way that they lead the people around them because a physician by definition is going to be in a position of leadership. They have physician assistants under them. They have nursing staff under them. They have all of these other people that are under them that they have to treat in a certain way. So the soft skills would be the training for learning how to do those things. I think the the misconception that people have is you're either naturally good at that or you're not. We don't think of those things like how a physician talks to a nurse as being something that's a skill that can be practiced and developed. So if I, if I say, for example, then sometimes you see people who are nice and like, there's, it seems like that's just a part of their personality, right? You see some people who kind of seem maybe a little bit more socially aware, uh, is it fair to say that some people might, you know, be more inclined, maybe naturally towards having some of these skills? Maybe is it is there a personality yeah. element to this? There is. And sometimes there, you know, the natural talent of those things will get you to a certain place. But I think anyone that's progressed in any type of environment, like professional environment, business environment, those natural skills will only take you so far. And there does reach a point where you have to cultivate something in, in addition to that. So if, if we take what you mentioned, right? Someone's naturally nice. Someone is naturally easygoing. That can get you, quite honestly, that gets you pretty far. Being nice and being easygoing can get you pretty far. But then as you progress and you reach certain levels, you have to now learn how to develop that skill because sometimes being nice and easygoing is not what's called for in that situation. Sometimes you have to deliver critical feedback. Sometimes you do have to take a, a tough stance, even if not for yourself to represent your team. And so if someone is naturally nice and easygoing, the ability to stand up and firmly stand your ground with another team professionally and respectfully, that skill might be harder to work on and they have to develop that. So how do you start uh, assessing within yourself what it is that you should be working on? You know, so if I feel like, you know, I know that, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a job and I have all the technical requirements and I go in and, you know, maybe the interview doesn't go well, or maybe, you know, I'm there for a few weeks or a few months. And then, you know, I have, you know, from a technical perspective, everything has been done right. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit extra that's missing, or maybe I feel like, you know, in my interactions with people, I'm not cultivating the type of relationship that I want to. Uh, how do it, how is it that I can actually start identifying those areas that need to be worked on when they're so kind of, uh, uh, you know, they could be so vague sometimes in our mind. So it, a little bit of it depends on where you are in the journey, right? So if you're starting out, you haven't had your foot in the door, you don't have as much experience. I would say that you talk to other people in that field and ask them, what are the things that make, you know, that help people get ahead? Because, and like, like I mentioned in the article, at a certain point, the hard skills will level off. So if we use the example of, let's say, a pharmacist, chances are in high school, that person was at the top of their class or toward the top of their class. 
chances are that in college, they probably made better grades than most of their peers, right? So the hard skills alone, their grasp of those scientific concepts set them apart enough that they didn't really have to worry about much else. But now that they've entered a workplace and they're, let's say, in a hospital, there's 15 other pharmacists working in that same hospital. Well, guess what? All of them were at the top of their class. All of them had good grades. All of them had to go through pharmacy school. All of them had to master all these clinical subjects. So now you're in a situation where it's leveled off. You're no longer set apart from everybody else. You're at an even playing field. So ask people what it is that sets some people apart from others and ask just generally ask those questions you identify it. Now, if you're in a position where you do have some experience, you have been in that role for a while, then, you know, some of it depends on the culture of your company, the coworkers that you have, but it's important to solicit feedback. And you'll notice that in good companies or good cultures, they do this regularly. Get 360 feedback, feedback from peers, feedback from leaders, feedback from direct reports. How is this person doing? What are the things that they can improve on? You know, what are, and just constantly collecting that feedback, you can, get a pretty good signal of what you need to look at and what you need to work on. I remember uh, a few years back, this was probably my first year of undergrad. I remember an older brother kind of giving me uh, some advice. He was involved with kind of uh, some, you know, campus activities and whatnot. He was giving me some advice on how I could improve in something that I was doing. Uh, and I told him, I was, I was like, you know, he's like, you know, I hope, you know, you're not, you know, offended. I want to advise, et cetera. I was like, no, man, I was like, not at all. Like, I, I really appreciate that you're advising me. And I was like, actually, I'm like, you're, you know, somebody who I respect and I look up to a lot. So, you know, uh, please, anytime that you, you know, see something that you could advise me on uh, anytime, even if it's something small, you know, please, like, I, I, I would really, you know, appreciate you uh, advising me on these things. And he stopped me there. And he told me, he's like, don't give anybody that much power. He's like, don't give any, anybody that much power that they will, uh, that you kind of expect them to be the one to always advise you and correct you. And because he's like, he's like, people's advice isn't always going to be correct. But more than that, it's like, you also don't want to remove the responsibility from yourself and, and kind of defer that to somebody else. And say, where I say something like, hey, man, you know, brother Ahmad, if you see me slipping up on something, I always want you to advise me. And then if I don't get your advice, I almost like passively start thinking that uh, uh, it was uh, that I'm doing fine or that I have like your passive uh, uh, approval or whatever it is. So I guess a question that I want to have for you is, this topic of asking people, not only asking people in general, you know, hey, what are the type of skills I should develop, but even what do you think I should do as an individual, you know, or what do you think I can improve? How do you go, go about navigating those waters of actually putting yourself out there, knowing who to put yourself out there to, to get good advice, and then to know how to navigate receiving that advice, both when you invite it and when you don't? So I think part of it is, facilitate and make it easy for people to give you useful advice. So let, let me give you a couple of examples. So let's say that you're in a professional environment and you're getting feedback from your manager that, uh, let me think of a good example. Okay, let's say you're getting feedback from manager that people are feeling as if you're not present during meetings, that you're not adding your voice, that they're expecting to hear more from you and you know, to take, for you to take more responsibility on things and that they're not really getting that from you. So you say, okay, we've clearly identified a problem now. So if, for example, your manager is giving you that feedback, you can say, okay, hey, manager, next time I lead a meeting, I'm gonna invite you in on it to sit on. You know, We talked about this feedback that I got. I'd like you to sit in on it and let me know what I need to do differently 
in order to change that feedback or to fix that thing, right? Now, most people will be willing to do that. And if it's not your manager, maybe it's a coworker or a friend or something, but just say, hey, can you come sit in on this? Here's the problem that I've identified. I need help with it. That's one thing that could work in, let's say, a professional situation. Let me give you another example. Because of projects like at the workshop, I have been in the position multiple times where people say, oh, Brother Omar, like, let me know if you have any feedback about my khutbah. And I'm just like, no, I, I just kind of cringe at that because it's just one of those, I understand someone maybe just being polite or whatever, but I know that it's not going to go anywhere, right? So normally I ignore that type of feedback. Then I had one particular individual, a friend of mine, who had asked me that a couple of times. He's like, hey, let me know what I need to do to fix my khutbah. And I was just like, okay, whatever. And then never followed up with him. And then he grabbed me, he's like, no, Omer, listen, tell me this Friday, I'm going to give the clip. I want you to take notes and tell me what to change up or what to fix. And I was like, okay, fine. So that Friday I took notes, I gave him feedback and he went back and worked on it and then came back and said, okay, hey, I made these changes. What did you think? Right? Same flip side. I had khutbah one time where it was a situation where I was the second khatib, the imam of the masjid was the first khatib. The imam of the masjid is someone that I respect greatly, especially on topics like delivering khutbah and presentation because he's he's really excellent at that. And so because of the second khatib, I knew he was going to be sitting there having to sit through my khutbah anyway, right? So I told him, I said, oh, Sheikh, can you give me some feedback? And he's like, yeah, sure. And I was like, no, no, I'm like, wait a second. This is not the yeah, sure situation. I'm like, it's very difficult for me to find people that are going to actually be listening and that I want that critical feedback from them. So this is not just a courtesy request. I legitimately want to come back and sit with you for like 15 minutes afterward and you tell me what I need to fix up and what I need to do better. And he was like, okay. So having given him like the direct actionable request, when the khutbah was done, we sat back in his office and to his credit, he sat down and he gave me very specific pointers. When you talked about this, I was expecting you to, you know, mention this issue, but you never went there and it kind of left this open-ended thing. Uh, here, when you talked about this, you should have maybe brought in this eye, you know, like he gave me very pointed critical feedback that otherwise I never would have received had I not approached him in a way that made it easy for him to give me that feedback. That's amazing advice. Jazakallah khair. Um, the, the, kind of, you, you went right now to the, that direction of da'wah, that direction of kind of giving khutbahs and whatnot. Uh, I I want to shift now a little bit. I, there's still a lot to say from the personal development side, uh, but I want to shift a little bit and in, in sort of kind of merge it as well with some of the da'wah things that you, that you have talked about before. Um, a lot of times when we're talking about uh, the process of, you know, how do you be a good Muslim? Uh, it's coming from, somebody who is on the mimbar, it's coming from somebody who is a speaker, it's coming from some sort of public platform, it's coming from something like that. Uh, and I feel like the result of that now is that there is some amount of people in this kind of new generation that has, has took a lot of Islam from social media, where we feel like a, the path to piety almost necessitates or requires uh, sort of involvement on a, on a public platform of like the magnitude of something like the mimbar or on social media or whatever. Um, and 
first of all, I, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that phenomenon. If you think that that is something that's happening now where, you know, people feel like this is basically a necessary part of piety or a necessary part of righteousness that you become the next speaker or that, you know, that's, that, that's like kind of the next logical step. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that. And then more than that, I want to kind of then also explore a little bit on how, you know, these perceptions of, uh, uh, of piety have, uh, you know, affected our ability to actually, you know, work on ourselves. So we'll, we'll start with the first part, inshallah. So you outline a very interesting phenomenon, which is when you primarily take from social media, it makes you almost feel that for me to now contribute Islamically, it also has to be on the same medium. And so if it's gonna be on the same medium, then I have to do the things everyone else is doing, which means I have to become a content creator, I have to become a speaker, I have to do this and that. And you know, all the, you know, and I don't want to go too far down like a rabbit hole, but all the reasons that people get attention come into play and being controversial, being belligerent, attacking people will get you views, even if people don't agree with you. Right. And so there is a trap of feeling like, well, this is how I consumed and this is how I learned. If I want to benefit others, I have to do the same thing. And I think that's one misconception that maybe we need to clarify is that you can benefit others in various ways, right? And one of the deceptions of social media is this feeling that the more people that I reach, the more good that I'm doing somehow. And that's, it's understandable, it's a logical conclusion, but it's, it's not that simple because not everyone that you're reaching is someone that you're benefiting. Not every, you know, your view count is not equivalent to your good deed count. And what gets overlooked oftentimes also is this like, for many people when you, and I know social media is a little bit different, but I think for a lot of people, they can identify with the idea that if you had some type of religious reawakening or reconnecting with your deen, or you know, you weren't praying and then now you started praying and practicing, there's a very high chance that a lot of that influence came from close personal relationships. It came through friends, whether they were in college and call, you know, that sense of community at your local masjid, you know, friends, family members, but there's someone that had some type of a relationship with you that had that impact. And I think that's the part that gets lost online where we assume that, well, if I just blast this out, I'm just doing good. Not realizing that's one blasting something out. Sure. That's one component of it. And sure. You hope that people read beneficial things and consume the beneficial content. But when it comes to the idea of actually changing someone's life for the better, not like a 180, but even incrementally changing someone's life for the better requires having some level of relationship with them. And I think that's harder to cultivate online. Yeah, so um, the, the, the logical conclusion I think that you're, uh, that you're leading us toward is that we should be emphasizing things that are offline. Uh, and I think it has it has to be complemented, right? If if the only dawah that you have is online, I per, and again this might just be me being old, but I find that deeply problematic. Uh, you know, there's and I forgot who said this, but there's that saying that everyone wants to change the world, no one wants to help their mom with the dishes. Like, if you're actually that in tune to making some type of change and dawah and impact, it's really the boring stuff first. It is working on your family, working on the people around you, working with your local community. And if you're bypassing all of those things to focus entirely online, I think there's a disconnect with your priorities. 
So I was listening to uh, one of your podcast episodes, which shout out to the Ibn Abi Omar podcast. Uh, the uh, and that's uh, uh, Ibn I B N A B E E O M A R. Check out the the his his work on that. Um, you had a conversation with the authors of uh, a book on grandstanding, uh, yes. which. Uh, which we could say is uh, sort of like the term that we're talking about, uh, uh, virtue signaling. Could you give me just a quick definition of the term grandstanding for those who aren't familiar? Or, or virtue signaling, whichever one you prefer. Sure. It's, it's the use of moral talk to build personal platform. I mean, so, in a nutshell. Yeah. So in, in, so in this case, if, if we really want to get into it, so it would be an idea like... Uh, right? Enjoying the good and forbidding the evil for the sake of building your own platform, not for the intention of actually enjoying the good or forbidding the evil. Yeah, so you in this conversation, one of the things that was mentioned, and, and the whole podcast is, is just a really, uh, it's a great conversation, and it really made me want to check out the book, and hopefully I will, inshallah. It's, um, um, so yeah, the important thing was, in that conversation, one of the things that was discussed was this need for us to shift uh, the place of our conversations for some topics and maybe even for a lot of topics away from social media because of the way that it's actually shaping, you know, how we view things like morality and piousness and productive conversations, constructive conversations, uh, because sort of the, the, the platform of, let's say, you know, a Facebook post or a, you know, any kind of anything that kind of bring, gets being brought up to the public light, there's a certain, you know, playbook over there and there's certain things that kind of subtly affect the way that we engage and so one of the points that was mentioned was that you know maybe we need to have for example instead of posting it on a facebook status postings to a smaller facebook group you know instead of having this uh, uh let's say trying to talk about something through you know a, a twitter thread how about you have you know a phone call with you know a few people about this uh and so i'm interested i guess now especially with you know what we have with covid and everything you know I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about how we can actually cultivate spaces outside of these big plat big platforms that will not only uh, uh, lead to more meaningful conversations, but can also help protect us from some of the the the, the fitness, some of the problems that happen on on these public public platforms that could be affecting our ability to actually have meaningful conversations. That's a really good question. Um, you know, the pandemic obviously kind of threw a wrench in everything. But I would say that if there's a way to have small groups that meet regularly in person, that's obviously, you know, one good way of doing it, right? To give like a very basic, basic example, when, when we encounter someone that just watches Fox News and becomes Islamophobic, our response is, hey, sit down and meet a Muslim. If you actually talk to us and get to know us, you know that we're not like that because we understand they've gotten into this weird echo chamber that's warped their views. Now that's a very extreme example, but it happens within the Muslim community as well, where you only follow certain types of people, only consume certain types of content. It shapes your view into thinking that, well, this is the only thing and everyone who disagrees with me is like this caricature that I've created in my mind. And so having actual conversations with people helps to break those barriers down. Now, granted that in person might not be accessible to everyone, particularly right now, um, stay home, everyone stay safe. But I would say that one way of cultivating those conversations, one thing that I've done at least is, you know, group texts with, with friends where you can speak freely and debate ideas, uh, where you can go back and forth and really try to hash things out and understand where someone else is coming from, that's where you might change your mind on something is when you're talking with someone that you know, someone that you respect that views something differently than you do, and you can both go back and forth and you might not agree, 
you're probably not going to agree, right? I, a lot of discussions I have with my friends, we don't agree on a number of these topics, but we also know that in our discussion with each other, we can refine those ideas and hone them in such a way where maybe we correct some of the misconceptions or mistakes that we had in our logic and approach. And also it helps us learning how to present those ideas elsewhere as well. But if you're only doing them on Facebook, you're going to get very polarized conversation because that's the medium is designed for that. Yeah, so I, I think one maybe reason why having these smaller scale conversations are a little bit less appealing is because we feel like the problem is a public problem, right? It's a problem that's relevant to everybody. It's something that we need to address publicly. Um, we need to have, you know, I, I, I've been using this, this kind of term a little bit, maybe too sarcastically recently, but we need to have, you know, more conversations. It's like, we, we have this idea that maybe, you know, this is going to be the status that makes the change. Maybe this is going to be the tweet. Maybe this is the whatever. So this is where, this is where social media enables a deep uh, sense of self-delusion where people think that this thing that I post on Facebook is going to somehow change the ummah. Like, no, it's, I'm sorry, it's not. You know, like your little Facebook post is not going to have a ripple effect to save the world from something. And people think that like, oh, I have to post this publicly so like everyone knows. And I forgot where I read this. Um, oh, it was an Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. He said that there's this idea of the imaginary audience that everything that we do, we assume that there's an audience of like hundreds of thousands of people waiting and watching to see the next thing that I tweet or the next thing that I post or the next photo that I put up. And it shapes our mind in such a way that we assume every little thing that we do just has this vast audience of people waiting to hear what it is that I have to say about something when reality is drastically different. And I think, and again, it goes back to that trap of, well, if I put it out in public, everyone's going to hear it. Like, okay, maybe you know, it may get 10,000 impressions, but that 10,000 impressions doesn't mean that you affected 10,000 people, right? And so I think we have, there's a little bit of humble pie involved in the sense that what I post is not that important. So how do we reconcile that with the idea then of, yeah, but you know, if one person benefits, that's enough for me. Then focus on the one person. Like, then, then focus your content in such a way that it actually would benefit one person. And don't create the content in such a way where it's maximized with the attempt of going viral. And there's a very big difference between the two. There's a very big difference in creating content that, look, okay, let's take the grandstanding podcast that you just mentioned, right? That episode is an hour long there is no chance that like 7 million people are going to go listen to it, right? In, in fact, if I pulled up the statistics and was completely transparent, I bet you it has 200 downloads, maybe 300. Of that, we can maybe say like, what, 20, 30, 40 people actually listen to the whole thing. I have no idea, but let's just assume that that's the case. Okay, cool. But my goal should be to produce that podcast to provide value for that 20 or 30 people that are actually interested in it and going to get benefit from it. Now, yes, I'm going to promote it and market it and trying to optimize it so that people who are interested can find it. Sure. But there's a difference in that 
versus me making a little, and, I, and I'm guilty of this, but making the little Instagram quote cards that scroll through with like 10 slides and make it reach 10,000 people. And I could package some of those same quotes and concepts and communicate the gist of it, but one is intended to go viral and one is intended to go deep. And I think if we really want to adopt that mindset of, well, even if one person benefits, well, then you should err on the side of going deep versus the side of going viral. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you then is it seems like the the lure or the allure of potentially quote unquote going viral. And by that, I mean like that your content or that your words are going to benefit a huge number of people that this is causing us to compromise on the actual quality of our content and the quality of what we do. Uh, uh, and possibly to belittle things that maybe are a little bit of a, on a smaller scale, but could be immensely more valuable, not only to others, but even for ourselves, as well as protect ourselves, protect, protecting ourselves from, you know, that spotlight and the effect of that spotlight. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. And it's not, and by the way, it's not to just, you know, throw all that type of content under the bus. It has value, particularly when it comes to things like reminders and, you know, little things like that. Like there is value in those things, but when, if we're addressing the creator side of it, right? The people that are trying to engage in online that or things like that, I would say be much more intentional about why you're doing what you're doing. Jazakallah khair. So uh, to tie this now a little bit back to the idea of, you know, developing uh, ourselves, you know, and, and the topic, of course, of the article that you wrote was developing soft skills, but it was really, a, a, I think, a guide and an introduction to the concept of personal development in general. Because when, we, when we're, we're saying something like soft skills, if we're talking about developing something like more empathy, right, or, uh, you know, being a better listener. Uh, being somebody who is, you know, kind of paying attention to people, whatever it is, these sort of uh, uh, the, the interpersonal skills, the soft skills, a lot of that is, you know, rooted, I think, in, you know, the akhlaq uh, of our of our deen, right, where, you know, Islam, yeah. one of, so, you know, we talk about Rasulullah was sent to perfect the best of manners. Um, the, the, the result of these manners that you develop is that you're developing a skill set that will, that will allow you to not only thrive professionally, but thrive in your worship, thrive in your uh, uh, social relationships. So having kind of viewed it from that angle, um, it really is, it opens the door to kind of just essentially the model that you give within this piece or the, the kind of the, the way that you discuss it opens the door for this to be considered uh, uh, this 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 approach should be considered basically for anything that we want to discuss our development in. So you mentioned uh, three kind of key areas, right? You mentioned number one is discomfort, embracing our discomfort. Uh, basically, you know, getting to the point where um, rec we're recognizing that our growth is going to happen when we are pushing ourselves beyond, you know, that which kind of we normally or casually do. Uh, the second thing that you went into was the topic of uh, uh, value, the idea that, you know, people often don't put value on developing these types of skills uh, because society will generally kind of, you get an award, you know, for, or sorry, you'll get, you'll get a degree, right? If you, you know, study a certain thing or whatever it is, you get a salary for the job that you, you, you do, but you know, the subtleties, they're not valued the same way, or at least as obviously, or, or at least they're not as easily quantifiable uh, as you know, these kind of the hard skills, quote unquote. And the third thing that you talked about was self-investment uh, and um, basically getting to the point that uh, we are actually thinking about ourselves as entities that are, uh, uh, you know, kind of deserving of having focused time uh, uh, in our schedules and in our days that we actually intentionally work on ourselves. So 
kind of with these three uh, uh, avenues, uh, I guess my question to you from there would be, how is it that we can actually get to the point of embracing the intentionality of all of this? Because it really does, that's the conclusion here, is that we need to be intentional. Because when we face, I think, discomfort, let's say when you're just, you're driving and you know somebody cuts you off, you're uncomfortable in that moment for whatever reason, uh, you're not, it's very difficult to kind of pull yourself out and be like, I'm going to embrace now this discomfort, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, I'm going to schedule time in my schedule. Uh, I'm going to put time in my schedule, in my planner to like talk to one of my, you know, friends or my parents and ask them for, you know, to give me advice on myself, or I'm going to, you know, follow up on whoever. That intentionality, and I remember, you know, you wrote something to this extent a few years back, you said something like intentionality, the process of being in, of being intentional is exhausting. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts and actually developing that intentionality, uh, particularly in this framework of embracing these three things. I mean, I think it's part of the intentionality is prioritization. And it's making those things, like making your own growth a priority of some sort, right? And so, uh, what's a good example? I'm trying to think of a good example, but things, you know, I think what we mentioned in the beginning is a good example. Being able to go to someone and asking for advice is, it can be hard. And I have seen people fail at that spectacularly right where when they get feedback their reaction is to cut that person out and this might be in a professional setting it might be like the head of like a big islamic organization and their reaction to getting any type of critical advice that's meant to benefit excuse me benefit them or benefit the organization if they're not able to stomach it their response is to cut cut that out and that's when you end up with the stereotypical example of someone surrounding themselves with the, with yes men and only hearing what they want to hear and you know becoming inflated with themselves and so on. So I think there's an element of just knowing like, hey, this is not going to be easy, whatever it is that you're working on. So if it's, I'll, I'll look, I'll give you one one example that came to mind. This is one that uh, I've struggled with is. If you get into a work environment and you're used to being the person that does the work, like you're used to being the one that people ask you like, hey, work on this, fix this, and you go and you put your head down, you fix it and give someone the solution. Now, if you do that long enough, you enter into a comfort zone of being able to do that. But now let's say that you get elevated into some type of a project manager role. Well, now you're no longer the one that's doing the work. You're the one that's managing the work and managing the work means that you now have to ask someone else to do it. And that for someone that's used to just taking ownership of and being like, let me do it verse and versus being the one that has to ask someone. And then if they don't do it, you have to follow up with them. And if they're still not doing it, you have to maybe have a difficult conversation with them. Like those things can be very hard and very difficult. And sometimes those can be make or break if you're not able to somehow master that, eventually it's gonna reflect back that this person's not good at this role. We need to move them back to the original one. But if you want to grow, then you've gotta be able to have the self-awareness to recognize, I am struggling with this aspect of my job. I need to go find a way to fix it. Um, and and to the point where you, you know, you're mentioning like just embracing that discomfort, that that is the embracing of the discomfort. It's admitting that this seemingly simple thing of being able to ask someone to do something is becoming so hard for me 
recognizing it and addressing it, that is the discomfort. And that's where the growth happens. How do you identify the people that you should uh, approach and ask for advice? If it's in a work environment, you should have resources, whether it's through management or through coworkers that you trust or things like that. Um, I have, look, I, there's been certain times where when I've transitioned into a different type of role, the challenges are different. And I had a situation where I was like, you know what? I'm struggling to keep up because I'm not used to working in this way, the way that this team works. I've come from a different environment or different company. I'm not used to working like this and I'm drowning. In that case, I set up a meeting with a coworker and I said, hey, you're pretty on top, on top of things. How do you stay organized? Because I'm not used to working like this. And then she was like, oh yeah. And then she sat down and showed me her whole system of how she manages all the stuff that happens with the team. And I was like, oh, okay, good. Now I have some actionable things that I can implement. I know that that sounds super simplistic. Like, oh, you just went to a coworker and asked them for help for how they do things. But yeah, uh, this is not to like hype myself up, but like a lot of people just won't take that step. They won't take the step of recognizing that they're struggling somewhere and that they need to go get help with it to improve. So the, the idea then of intentionality, of course, and being willing to kind of recognize that within ourselves that we need to identify the points that we can grow from. We need to consult people who can actually uh, uh, learn from. We need to embrace that it's going to be uncomfortable and we need to kind of make this a, a, a part of our routine, essentially. Uh, there is uh, underlying this and it also underlines. Can I, guess, I, oh, can I? Yeah. Sorry, can I mention something? It literally just came to mind. But the incident at Hudaybiyah, when the Prophet went and told everyone to shave their heads and everyone just kind of sat there, right? What did he do? He went back and took Shura from his wife. He's like, hey, I gave this command. Everyone normally follows the command. This time they didn't. Like something's different. Something's off. Like what do I? He went and took Shura from his wife. And she said, go out there and shave your head. And when they see you do it, they'll do the same thing. And then obviously that's what happened. But even that kind of innocuous passing hadith that we hear so often, that's an, a, almost a microcosm of that where you thought that you had, you thought that you'd be able to do this thing. You gave the command, no one listened. There's a sense of what's going on here. He immediately went and took advice from someone close to him. So there, there's something there, subhanAllah, where it, it ties actually exactly into the point I was going to mention, alhamdulillah, which is, you know, Rasulullah had a level of awareness that he was able to recognize that, hey, there's something not going as normally as it normally would. And so maybe there should be a change. Maybe there's something that could be done. And so he seeks counsel. So how do we get to that point? Because th this level of awareness underlies our experience on in everything that we do, in all honesty, including social media. Um, how do we get to the point of being able, able to actually be aware of, let's say, the growth opportunities or, the, or, or be aware of sort of these almost like inflection points where, you know, things can go in a certain direction if you don't actually take action now or if you keep going with the stream. Because I, I, I have a feeling personally that social media encourages us to become very passive about our growth, to be very passive about uh, uh, kind of recognizing these types of things. So, I mean, so there's, you know, we hear Arlema say all the time that I'm just a student of knowledge. I'm just a student of knowledge. I'm just a student of, like, they... They repeat it so much that it almost sounds cliche, but the reality is, is that they do that because that's something that they learn from their teachers who learn from their teachers and so on. And there's a deep wisdom there, which is this, that the more that you continually hammer into your own head, I'm a student of knowledge. 
the more that you're hammering into your own head that you have not attained 100% mastery over this particular thing or this subject area. And so when you constantly remind yourself, I am a student of knowledge, what that does is it, it sets the, it creates your mindset in such a way that I don't know everything that I need to know. There's more for me to know. And there's other people who are better at this than I am. And the more that you remind yourself of that, the more that you'll seek out the ways to learn and to improve. To give you a completely polar opposite example, all right? The stories about Kobe Bryant are similar in the sense that he would go and meet like a, a footballer like Messi or something and be like, what do you guys do in practice? How do you do your drills? He's not going to become a star soccer player, but he's just wanting to know what do they do when they practice to see, is there something different I can do when I practice? Like, is there some little edge, some little nugget that I can take and incorporate that'll make me like 1% better? And so it's that mindset of constantly seeking out a way to improve. So when someone has that mindset that intentionally, I'm a student, there's always room for me to improve, that orients you into always being in that learning mindset or growth mindset. Whereas if a person just dismisses those things, then they're going to become satisfied with where they're at. And that's where that delusion kicks in of, I've already got this stuff down. And I don't need, you know, I don't need to worry about these things anymore. Like I've already been at this for like 20 years and so on. And that's when that settles in and the growth process stops. Just trying to unmute myself. Jazakallah khair. Yeah, I, uh, I think you really knocked it out of the park on that one. And um, that's not really to hype you up, but just because subhanAllah, I think there is just this is the this is maybe the, the underlying attribute that we actually need to develop uh, 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 that that leads into everything else, right? If we actually have that ability, inshallah, to uh, uh, cultivate that level of you know awareness and intentionality, uh, it shifts how we engage with things like social media. And I guess that's maybe to, to shift it as we were kind of running up towards the end right now. Social media, and and I really do encourage you guys to actually take a look at the book, because the book, the way that he structures the information, is really useful. Um, do you consider social media to be a neutral tool or a tool that is, that is you know, by design, let's say, going to uh, result in harms, uh, uh, particularly from that angle of us being intentional with our usage of, of it? All the research that I did, and mostly, again, from like non-Muslim sources, is very difficult to conclude anything other than the fact that the harm outweighs the good. Uh, so it is a tool that can be used for good or bad, but I don't think that it's a neutral tool. It is definitely designed to, you know, exploit people's vulnerabilities and anxieties. I mean, there's just, just no way of getting around it. Like if, you know, prior to social media, we made this criticism about news and entertainment that news is, you know, if, if you watch something like uh, the Michael Moore documentary, Bowling for Columbine, right? 1999 school, you know, the first big school shooting. And he went into the difference of media in the US versus media in other countries like Canada. And he was talking about how there's so much emphasis on violence and tragedy and, you know, just the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type of thing, right? Because when people are fearful or you're able to stir up a state of paranoia or anxiety, they're going to stay glued to whatever it is that you're showing them. So that was the case with the news, like, you know, over 20 years ago. So now if you look at social media, yeah, it's a tool, but how does the tool work? 
who benefits from that tool? Who's making money off of the tool and how are they making money? Well, if they're making money from monetizing attention, right? Who's viewing, who's sharing, who's liking, who's commenting, then they are naturally going to promote the things that get attention. And that's going to either be things that are lewd and immoral or things of that sort, or it's going to be things that are, again, exploiting those vulnerabilities. So it's things that people get freaked out and they are sharing or watching, they're glued to it. So they share those things. And in terms of your own usage, it's going to find ways to give you the validation that you want. And so even things like TikTok, you know, it's well known now that the way that their algorithm works is when someone is brand new to the platform, TikTok pushes out their first couple of videos because it wants your first few videos to go viral because it wants you to feel that validation of getting thousands of views or hundreds of likes and then getting hooked on it to the point that you're like, oh, I got to keep doing, I got to keep doing this. I got to make another video and another video. And they hook you that way by exploding, by exploiting your desire to be validated. So then when we do things like, for example, call for justice or call for accountability, or, you know, when we use social media to be a means of, uh, let's say, you know, making or calling for social change, um, is there a risk that uh, uh, social media is going to taint our ability to actually do that effectively? And, and particularly, I'm thinking in that context, you know, one of the questions that was, uh, that was asked was the idea of you know, public accountability for things, for public wrongs. Uh, is there a chance that the way that we're going about you know, ha handling this public accountability through social media, that it's making it maybe uh, uh, more challenging or more hard, harmful? And I don't want to reduce it like that because obviously things like Me Too, right? Uh, a lot of the conversation around that will go into well, you know, look at all the false accusations and look at all the people who, is, and, you know, people who they start arguing about that and they sort of lose the, the big picture. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if this is just going to permanently change the way that we handle, you know, things publicly, uh, because what's the alternative when things need to be done publicly? Is there an alternative other than using social media? So I don't want to say anything's permanent because, you know, past history teaches us things change very drastically now and like within two years or five years. Right. So I don't want to say anything's permanent. Um, in terms of things like social justice and things of that nature, it, you know, I, I don't want to keep using the buzzword, but it requires intentionality. What is your purpose of engaging in a certain way? One of the things that I came across that was interesting was that, you know, studies found that people were more interested in being known as someone that cares about causes than they actually did care about a particular cause. So they're more interested in changing their profile picture to be the flag of a country to signal to people that I'm compassionate, I care about this tragedy, I, you know, that's the type of person that I am versus how much they actually cared about what happened in that particular situation, right? So there, so there is a very big element of what your intention is. Is your intention to raise awareness or is your intention to, you know, portray a certain image of yourself? And then now if it is to raise awareness or it is accountability or these things, then I think there's a healthy dose of pragmatism required, which is what is the actual effect of this action? And is there a better way to accomplish the action that I'm, I'm trying to do? So for example, maybe sharing something on Facebook might 
not raise the awareness that you think is going to raise because only the people who like it are going to, I mean, only the people who already agree with it are going to like it. The people that disagree with it aren't going to change their mind just because you shared a particular article, especially if you share that article without even reading it in the first place to, again, portray an image of yourself. But maybe having a conversation about that particular topic with one or two people who maybe they disagree with you, but you know that you have, again, you have a relationship with, well, you might not change their mind completely, but you might change their perspective on it at least a little bit. And that might perhaps be more meaningful than sharing a dozen articles online. If your intention is, you know, we really need to do whatever we can to help this cause. Okay, well, you know, one place that's, again, the low-hanging fruit of social media is fundraising and, you know, crowdfunding and those things that, hey, maybe that is a little bit easier. And so helping to raise funds for that cause, that might be like a very good use of that tool. But again, it's also, you know, it comes back to how you complement all these all these actions. Did you complement your online activism with dua? Did you complement your online content consumption of a bunch of tweets with maybe reading a book about the topic to actually educate yourself in some type of a deeper manner on the topic? So there's no easy rule of thumb. It really depends issue to issue and person to person. But the I think the bottom lines of your actual intent and being pragmatic about the outcome, having those two things top of mind, I think go a long way. And, and well, yeah. one, uh, okay, one other thing that you mentioned, and I, I know that this can go into a whole, whole different thing, but you talked about like Me Too and accountability and things like that. I don't think that these things are permanent, but what I think that's happening, I think it's important to point this out, is when this is, and I'm making a, I want to be clear, I'm making a general statement. I'm not making a statement specific to any one issue or cause, but as a general statement, when you have injustice that's being done because there is a power balance of some sort, right? Where what, where the, let's say the oppressive party is more powerful than the party that's being oppressed, where their access to platform is unequal, where their access to resources is unequal, then people will take to tools like social media where they do feel more empowered in order to try to restore balance to that equation. Now, how successful that is, how wise that is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that can all be debated and discussed at, you know, infinitely. But I did want to make sure that people understand that one aspect of it, that it's just not as simple as saying, oh, don't take this up to social media, because you do have to acknowledge that there is a deeper issue there sometimes with why people are going to social media with it. I absolutely love that. And um, I think, subhanAllah, you allow us then to kind of turn the lens where there is the uh, uh, there's the individual perspective, right, where we want to focus on our intentionality. We want to focus on, you know, being cautious that we don't fall into harmful trends, etc. Uh, uh, but at the same time, not using that intentionality or our attempt, you know, at being intentional and focused, etc. Um, not using that to, you know, let's say make claims about uh, uh, the bigger uh, uh, social trends, right? Uh, where, you know, everybody should just be more intentional. And until everybody can have, you know, good intentions, we have to stop the conversation. It just doesn't work. Uh, uh, and so maybe kind of differentiating, I guess, between the advice on the individual level and the social level. Does that make sense? Am yeah, I getting that right? Yeah, it's, yes. So the standard that I hold myself to and the rigor that I put myself through in regards to what I post, I can't hold everyone else to that. And so 
I need to hold myself to a particular standard in terms of what I post and why I post it. But if I see a bunch of people posting about something, you know, instead of subjecting them to that same rigor, oftentimes I'm better served just being quiet and listening and observing and seeing why are all of these people saying this thing. Jazakallah khair, Brother Omar. Uh, I'm very grateful for your time today. Um, so what we're going to do now, inshallah, is for the folks who registered uh, uh, through the event link, uh, we're going to continue for just a couple minutes just to answer a few more questions, if that's cool. Uh, yep. And uh, on socials, we will uh, be ending the stream over here. So Jazakumullah khair for everybody who tuned in. Please uh, check out uh, Brother Omar's book, The Fiqh of Social Media. Uh, and uh, we will have, inshallah, a link there on wherever and i believe it's also linked uh, in his article on the website uh please check out his article soft skills uh at thinkbytes.org and please consider subscribing to uh both the ibn abi umar uh, newsletter by uh, brother umar uh as well as the thinkbytes newsletter and full disclosure this this goes to a longer conversation but brother umar is somebody who i look up to a lot and uh, a lot of the values that uh, uh you know, we're trying to bring into the work that we do at ThinkWhites is inspired by a lot of the ideas that you've talked about in your newsletter and your writing. So, you know, we're eternally grateful for that. And, uh, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa reward you and uh, accept from all of us. Uh, please, I mean, uh, please uh, uh, consider subscribing to the newsletter and uh, uh, to both of the newsletters, inshallah. And Jazakumullah uh, khair for tuning in. Subhanallah wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfirukum wa natubu ilaik. Wa al-asr inna l-insana lafi khusr. Illa ladhina amanu amil salihat. Wa tawasub al-haqqi. Wa tawasub al-sabr. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone. And um, for those who are now still on Zoom. So we will. So I can close Instagram? Yeah, you can close Instagram. We have to figure out a way around the Instagram stuff. Uh, and um, I think... Um, Okay, cool. So we are good to go now. So yeah, the reason why was uh, uh, just because. So I'm I, so sorry. First of all, Mubarak, I'm not going to save the live video on Instagram. I think the quality was just not good. Yeah, I'll just put up the uh, the, the actual video from here later. Sorry, sorry. Say that one more time. I'll put up the uh, the actual video. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be perfect, inshallah. So yeah, um, but uh, what we will do, bismillah, is. Um, yeah, we'll just continue over here because some people ask some really good questions here that uh, uh, I just want to give a chance uh, uh, to have uh, uh, these folks uh, have them uh, answered. Uh, one of the questions was um, unclear to me. Ismail, I don't know if you're still in the room, but how do we break down those barriers? It seems like stonewalling, suffering and silence slash silent treatment is rife. Um, I'm not sure what that was in, but is he still in the room or I, he, okay, he must have headed out. Okay, alhamdulillah. Uh, the next question was... Um, how can we develop soft skills in children? You know, kids copy behavior. And so they just have to see it. Um, they have to see how you treat other people, how you talk to people, how you interact with them. I mean, really, it's, uh, it's a lot of they're going to copy your behavior, but then also it's you have to just instill, you know, I mean, parenting is a whole, I don't feel comfortable giving parenting advice, but it's just a whole, uh, whole other subject. But I would say focusing on instilling those values. Like, you know, one thing, one thing I tell my kids, for example, is like, I don't care if you study for an, you know, if you get an F on an exam, but you studied properly, you asked for help when you needed it, you, you know, did your extra tutoring, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, you, if you did the right process and you got an F, like, okay, we'll deal with it and fix it. But uh, you know, but if you get an F because you didn't do your homework, or you didn't study, 
we're going to have like a huge problem, right? So it's constantly instilling in them the focus on the right priorities, the right process, things like that. But again, a lot of it, they're going to copy your behavior. So, you know, be very mindful of how you're talking to people, how you're interacting with others, how you're uh, approaching different types of things. They, they're sponges. They, you know, they absorb everything you do. Uh, the next question was, uh, does the attainment, there was a question here and I tried to bring that actually into the conversation, which was the issue of uh, accountability. And the question was like, how do we navigate cancel culture slash dragging, you know, Muslims engage in it and they justify it with accountability, but it comes across as unassamic. I think we addressed that for the most part. Um, alhamdulillah, unless there was anything that you wanted to add to that, uh, but I think we addressed it. Yeah, I would... It's, it's really difficult to talk about you know, without without it, with specifics. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this is don't let demonization of cancel culture be a way to sidestep accountability. And don't let accountability become a way to bully and harass people either. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, does the attainment of soft skills depend on a person's upbringing and mental issues? Examples, uh, narcissism or malignant personality types, or those who are desperate for validation due to issues growing up? Those things will affect it for sure. And this is, personally, this is a subject of interest to me because I've been around people like that, particularly in Islamic environments, which is wild, right? So, uh, it, it does impact it for sure. And the way that it impacts it is this, is if, if you think about, look, let's use this example. Think of a politician. If a, some politicians have very polished soft skills, they know how to speak very well. They know how to speak in a very refined manner. They know how to communicate things like compassion and, you know, care and concern and all these things, but they're manipulative. And that's what you'll find a lot of times with narcissistic personalities in any environment is sometimes their mastery of concepts like leadership, of how to gain influence, of how to portray a certain self-image, uh, of how to talk to others and be charismatic. A lot of times, if they are narcissistic, they will use that to be manipulative and, and up themselves, right? And so this is where, and again, this is a much broader conversation, but this is why any type of self-development or personal growth or any of these subjects has to be rooted in a foundation of an Islamic worldview, because that's the only way to develop any type of accountability hedge against your own ego. And if someone doesn't approach it from Muslim first, Akhir accountability first, you can fall into those traps, even if you don't have that personality type. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.